all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking, a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family, from mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions. Whatever it is, we're here to help. Find out what we're all about and subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Morgan McLeod, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Internal Medicine at UMMC. Today we have one of our radio show favorites on with us, Dr. Feldman, who is going to talk to us about vaccinations. And we're going to talk um, about childhood vaccines in particular, but we can also answer any questions that you may have. And at the end, we were going to kind of go over a little bit of the adult vaccinations, too. So if you have any questions about those, you can always send us an email to kids at mpbonline.org. Say good morning, Dr. Feldman. Thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And I'm going to get started, if that's okay. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Every February, the ACIP approves a new schedule. Will you you explain what the ACIP is for everybody? That's the Centers for Disease Control Vaccine Group. And once a year, they update the immunization schedule for both children and adults. Um, And I wanted to discuss some of the updates that have come on. Um, First of all, in terms of your infant at two, four, and six months, they now have a vaccine called Vaxillus. And what's the advantage of nice about this vaccine is it puts almost everything together. So now a two-month-old who comes in for his, quote, shots can get this Vaxillus, which has the hepatitis B, the pertussis, the diphtheria, the tetanus, the polio, and the Haemophilus influenza B vaccine in one shot. So now at two months, for example, you would get this plus the PCB-15, which is new. We used to have the PCB-13, and we've added a couple of more strains to the vaccine, the pneumococcal vaccine. And that's important because pneumococcus is a very common cause of ear infections. It's a common cause of meningitis, which is way down because of this particular vaccine and the hip vaccine. Um, and it can cause blood infections, et cetera, bone infections. So we now have this PCV15, which cuts down even further on this relatively common infection in children. So a child at two months would get, for example, Vaxillus, the pneumococcal PCV15, and rotavirus, which is an oral vaccine. So you're down now basically to two shots at two months, four months, and at six months. Which, again, keep in mind, 
getting decreased in a number of shots is great. And this, this vaccine doesn't increase the side effects. So it's basically the same as if you got the shots broken up into several different combinations, which is good because, again, less reactions are always nice. Um, so I was going to ask if you could kind of explain that because I feel like a lot of people are hesitant to give the combination shots because they think it's that they're getting too much at one time if it's all in one. So can you explain that that is actually safe and it is okay to give more than one shot, you know, more than one vaccination together? Right. I mean, that's been looked at very, very carefully. And what the studies have shown, and again, we're talking about thousands of kids. We're not talking about 10 kids in which they test this. And if you look at the side effects, for example, redness, swelling, tenderness at the injection site, there's sometimes you see fever with vaccines. When you have these combinations, which put many of them together, um, it doesn't increase that. It seems to be the same. It's not less by any means, but it's not more. So it's just as safe as whatever your doctor was giving you when you were a ch- uh, child yourself and now you're a parent or when your teenager got when they were young infants. So that these new ones have no increase really in side effects and they produce just as good protection. So you're not giving up anything. You're just gaining one less shot that you have to get. And they're getting just as safe. Um, and that, that's nice, again, to cut down on the number of shots and not increase your risk for side effects or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other changes, and there's two changes I want to talk about. One of the things is the flu vaccine. I mean, that's been around for years, nothing new. Somewhere about 30 or 40 percent or maybe 50 percent of kids um, get their flu vaccine. And you should get it. And one of the things to think about is COVID. Because COVID and flu can have the somewhat similar symptoms. And we know that although the flu vaccine doesn't protect you 100%, if you get the flu vaccine, you're going to get a mild case of flu. And that's important, again, in this day and age when we are dealing with COVID. And COVID is probably not going to go away. It's going to be around for I don't know how long. Nobody knows. But it's not going to be gone this year. It's not going to be gone next year. It's not going to be gone the year after. Um, And one of the things that is now recommended, starting at six months of age, that children should get the COVID vaccine. Uh, Again, it's not a requirement. You don't need it to go to school. You don't need it to go to daycare. Um, And again, like the flu vaccine, it's going to become sort of a standard vaccine. And what you would like to think about is if I can give my infant when the time comes, particularly if it's flu season, um, the flu vaccine and also give them the COVID vaccine, I'm cutting back on their chances of getting severely ill from both flu or COVID. And COVID, you know, again, it's worse than the flu. No question about that. But the vaccine, again, doesn't necessarily prevent every case of COVID, but it does make COVID milder. So something to keep in mind now for your infant and many of the docs, when your infant reaches six months of age, they're going to say to you, offer you the COVID vaccine for your infant. And again, 
it's uh, and it can be taken any time during childhood. The sooner you start it, the better off you are. Question for the sure. COVID vaccine. So in our infants, the first time they get the flu shot, we recommend them getting two doses of the flu vaccine um, so that they can build up their immunity and protection. Correct. So what about the COVID shot? Are the little ones going to have to get more than one vaccination or is it just one shot? No. Good question. Um, while it varies with which COVID vaccine you use, it does have multiple shots. I mean, separated over a period of time. And, for example, um, the Pfizer vaccine, just there's a couple of them, but let's just say the Pfizer. Uh, for example, you get one and two doses three to eight weeks apart, okay? And then after eight weeks, you wait another eight weeks and you get your third dose. So that has three doses, and again, there might even be a booster, but for the time being, if your child was six months of age and came in today for his regular or her regular um, vaccines, they would offer you the COVID and they would tell you, well, okay, you're going to get the Pfizer as an example, and you get one today. You come back in a week, in three weeks, four weeks, something like that, five or six weeks, whenever it's convenient, get the second dose. And then after you get the second dose, you're going to wait two months or eight weeks to get the third dose. End the story, at least for the time being. Um, so it will be multiple doses spread out over a period of time. And again, keep that in mind, and particularly if it's in the fall when there's a flu season around, that you really want to get both of these to cut down on your child's risk of a respiratory infection, which tend to be more severe than just the cold. Uh, and again, having both vaccines, the flu and the COVID, if you're going to get those infections, they're going to be much milder. They're going to make your life and the child's life much easier. Um, and that's the big change in the schedule for uh, young children uh, through 18 years of age is COVID vaccine. And again, pushing the flu vaccine, uh, again, to cut down your risk of getting uh, respiratory uh, infections. Which are extremely very common in the fall and winter months. Oh. Um, but if you have little kids, it can be happening at any time, which is why I kind of have a hoarse voice right now because my little ones have it right now. So not COVID, just a cold. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so you can – little kids are just little cesspools of germs, and we can they can get these viruses at any time. So this is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We are talking vaccinations today, and we have Dr. Feldman on with us, and we kind of ran through before the break a little bit about some of the updates to the childhood vaccines. And we're going to kind of transition into some of the adolescent vaccines because we, we focus a lot on the vaccines that our little babies get, and it kind of tapers off. You know, you don't really have to go to the doctor as much as your kids get older, and so sometimes those adolescent vaccinations kind of fall off, and a lot of them are really important. And so we're going to talk about some of those now is the um, adolescent vaccines. Real quick before we get into the, the adolescent vaccines, for people who may just be tuning in, can you do a, a real quick summary of the, the update to the childhood vaccines? Well, I think the biggest thing in the update in the childhood vaccines is now COVID 
is considered a standard vaccine for infants and children. Not a requirement, but it's one of the standard vaccines, and your physician will probably be offering it to you because it's starting at six months of age or any time in childhood to get the COVID vaccine. And what I threw in with that is the flu vaccine. Both of those, flu and COVID, cause upper respiratory tract infections. And one thing we know, both with the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine, while it doesn't prevent 100%, but what it does do is makes the disease milder. So if your child's going to get COVID and your child's going to get flu because they've been exposed, if they're vaccinated, it's going to be milder disease, less likely for hospitalizations and all this serious stuff that you can get from these two infections. Uh, And that's the big thing that came out this year for children through 18 years of age is the COVID vaccine. And again, a push for the influenza vaccine to cut down on your chances of Uh, those upper respiratory infections. Plus, one other quick thing was the pneumococcal vaccine, which has been around for years. They've now expanded it to 15 serotypes. And what that does is it just provides more protection because all these serotypes that are pneumococcus, they're the ones that cause infections, ears, nose, meningitis, pneumonia, all this kind of stuff, bone infections, joint infections, you're now decreasing the risk because you have more types in it and less likely for your child to get these type of infections. And so, well, now start talking about adolescent vaccinations. And typically when we start those adolescent vaccinations, it's usually when they come in for their quote unquote seventh grade shots or middle school shots. Um, And that usually is sometime around that 11 or 12 year age range. And then we usually give another round of vaccinations um, sometime between that 16 to 18 year age range. Kind of I always tell parents, think of it like a booster before they go to college. Essentially, because you're trying to, you know, as they're finishing up high school, getting them prepared and ready for college. So so those are the age ranges that we typically think of adolescents for. Um, but honestly, we can we can really catch them up at any time. But those are just kind of the main age ranges that we think of it for. So, right. um, But I think one of the big ones that we wanted to talk about, because the only one that's truly required by school and the reason you come and get your seventh grade shots is the Tdap. Um, which is the tetanus and pertussis whooping cough shot. Um, but there's a couple of other vaccines that we give at this age, too. And so I'm going to let Dr. Feldman talk about some of those. Yeah, I want to talk about several of those. And one has been the anti-cancer vaccine. Mm-hmm. It's been around now for somewhere 205, 206, 207 is when we came up with this anti-cancer vaccine for human uh, papillomavirus. And Typically, it was given some sometime when you came in for your Tdap, but now they're pushing it down to age nine. And what they've shown very nicely is, first of all, if you give this HPV vaccine, this anti-cancer vaccine, we're talking about forty thousand cases of cancer per year in this country due to HPV. Another interesting sort of sidelight to that, if you look at the HPV-type cancers, and i got a whole list of them, um, Mississippi ranks as one of the highest states for HPV cancers. Um, I didn't realize that. Yeah, we are in the highest tiers for the different cancers caused by HPV. Um, 
and they now are saying we need to start giving that vaccine at nine years of age. And I had to look up, nine years, what grade is that? Believe it or not, that's the fourth grade. Mm -hmm. Can you imagine? But what they are showing is the earlier you give this vaccine, the better protection you get long term. And if you look at the cancers caused by HPV, and the two most common are oral cancers and cervical cancer. And actually, oral cancer now is more common than our cervical cancers. So the earlier you give these, you can show the better the protection. So giving it nine years is just as protective as, for example, giving it 11 years. But the nice thing about giving it at nine years of age, it, it's a two-dose series, is you have a chance to get both your doses um, at a younger age. And it's been clearly shown in this country and in Scandinavian countries that you get better protection the earlier you give it. And so giving it at 9, 10, 11, and 12 is better than giving it at 17, 18, 19, or 20, whatever. And it's something to keep in mind. So now they're giving it at nine years of age. And that's not a routine visit, for usually for your child, unless your doctor has you come every couple of years for just a routine checkup. But the big push now is to start that HPV vaccine at nine years of age and have it completed by the time you get out of high school. It makes it just a lot easier. Um, now, again, traditionally, it was given with the Tdap vaccine, which you needed to get school entry. And we have one of the highest rates in the nation of school entry Tdap vaccine because we do a great job when it comes to school-required vaccines and daycare. Same mm -hmm. thing. Um, along with the Tdap vaccine has been the meningitis vaccine and um, MenCV4 Um and that's a two-dose vaccine. Uh, you give the first one at 11 years of age, and then you wind up giving a booster. And what's been interesting now is there's another vaccine, MenB, uh, which is, again, one of the more common strains that cause meningitis, at least in this country. Um, and that you give at 15 to 16 years of age. So what's nice is if you get your uh, MenCV4, when you get your Tdap, you can come back for your booster for your MCV4 and get your meningitis B vaccine and again save yourself. And um, those two vaccines prevent meningitis, which used to be a lot more common, but it's very serious even today. So you want to give it, and what's been shown is if you look at when this meningitis occurs, it occurs basically in late adolescence and college-age kids. So by getting them men MCV4 and the men B, you're basically protecting your child or your adolescent through their adolescent period and the first couple of years into their 20s. And then by the middle 20s to late 20s, meningitis just sort of fizzles out, uh, period. But that high-risk period is when you want to have the vaccine for your kid. And I have seen some colleges are requiring the meningitis shot. So if you're going to live in the dorm rooms... Um, I know there. I don't know that any of the Mississippi college, public colleges are. At one are time, yet. Delta 
Delta State was? Yeah, I don't know if it still does, but at one time it required the meningitis vaccine. Yeah, some of them, some of the colleges do if you're going to live in the dorm rooms, um, just because it is, you know, right. with, with that close contact, living in the dorm rooms is easier spread. Um, so I know, and that's when we think about outbreaks, um, is in those kind of situations. But I don't know that Ole Miss or State or Southern, like the big, big public universities, as far as I are, know, they but, don't. But yeah, but there definitely are some colleges because we've definitely had some high school students come in for their checkups that have to have it before they can go to college. So, and some are men B too. I mean, we used right. to just think the the original meningitis shot, but now that men B has been out for a little while, they're requiring the men B as well. So, yeah, and the men B has been one of those really associated with college outbreaks. Mm-hmm. Uh, same, all military people, by the way, get the meningitis yeah. vaccine. Um, for the same reason, they're living in close quarters. Mm-hmm. I re- I didn't get it before I went to college, but I remember it came out, or at least my mom first heard about it when I was like a freshman or sophomore in college. And she made me come home from college and get it because the pediatrician had told her about it at my sister's visit. And she was like, you have to come home and get this new <laughs> shot. Because my sister actually had meningitis when she was six months old. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, was in the hospital for a while and, uh, yeah, got really sick. So when she was six months old, so the minute my mom heard there was a meningitis shot, we all had to come home and take the meningitis shot. So, uh, I mean, that was, you know, 20-something years ago. But it was, uh, you know, that was – I can remember specifically coming home from college to get that shot because – it had just come out, or it was semi-new at the time, and my mom had just heard about it. So, Yeah, it's my understanding that some of the colleges in the state, you could go to their health office mm-hmm. and get the shot. I don't know about payment and all this kind of stuff, but in some of the colleges, it's available for you to get if you request it. Yeah. Um, it's definitely one that you want to get if you, you know, for your kids, if they're going to be living in a dorm room in particular. So, and then... Let's before we take our quick before we take our break, um, just quickly, I wanted to talk about go back to the HPV vaccine, because I feel like um, at least in my practice, there's a lot of stigma around the HPV vaccine. And I don't really know why, but there's a lot of like myths and things out there that people are are worried to give their child the HPV vaccine. And uh, people have heard horror stories about the HPV vaccine and they they all think it's some new vaccine. But this is another vaccine I remember getting in college as well um, because or maybe even right after college. Because uh, it had, so it's been around for a long time too, and people don't realize that they still think it's a new shot. Um, they still think it can cause lots of potential side effects, but it's a very safe vaccine. Um, and so, can you just kind of elaborate on that? Because I, I don't know what it is about the HPV vaccine, but people have all these hesitations about it because of potential side effects. But can you just kind of elaborate on how it is a very safe vaccine? Oh, the side effects in terms of what you usually think about. Oh, redness and swelling and all that. It's going to occur. Um, And, you know, somewhere maybe one out of every four to one out of every two is going to get pain or redness and swelling. But in terms of any serious side effects, um, life-threatening or anything you can think of, it's not true. One of the things they do with the HPV vaccine... um, is suggest that you stay around the office for about 15 minutes afterwards. Now, I don't know whether it's just adolescents fainting because they got a shot. 
I mean, I can think of all these football players getting their brains knocked around constantly, and they're fine, and they get a shot, and they faint. <laughs> um, but, you know, that tends to occur, and that's why they say wait around 15 minutes. And that's so you don't drive home and faint, or driving, fainting, and talking on the phone at the same time. Forget that. But otherwise, there were really no serious side effects and all kinds of myths of what it does to the child and makes the adolescent do this, that, or the other thing. Nothing's ever been shown, and it's been looked at ad nauseum constantly. And nobody's come up with anything other than the usual side effects of any kind of shot in terms of redness and pain, swelling at the injection site and stuff like that. Yeah. <clears throat> I will say with my second dose, because I got it later and this was before they changed the rules, I had to get the three doses, um, I did almost pass out. Now, I bageled down really easily and I've passed out many a times in my life. <laughs> so I, it's probably just me, but I did almost pass out with the, my second shot. I had to sit down for a little bit. And actually, you see the fainting more with the second than the first. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah I mine, don't know why. And nobody does either. Mine was my second because I didn't yeah. want to get my third. I can remember. And, um, but I did end up getting my third, and it was fine. I didn't have any problems. I don't know what it was about the second shot, but for some reason I did almost pass out with my second shot. But, again, I pass out very easily. <laughs> I will always have. I've passed out many a times in my life. So, um, It looks like we have a caller, so we'll go to her real quick. Good morning, Evelyn. What's going on? Good morning. I have a comment about spinal meningitis. Folks, take spinal meningitis seriously, please. Um, it can cause deafness. Or, and uh, I'm a teacher of the deaf. When you fingerspell S-P-I-N-A-L, and all you have to do is start that M. And deaf adults, their eyeballs get big. And my experience with spinal meningitis was uh, before I was a teacher of the deaf, I worked at the state senate. And we had an up-and-coming, brilliant state senator uh, from northeast Mississippi. And then I left the state senate and later found out uh like within four years he had spinal meningitis and lost his hearing and uh changed his, the the course of his life forever uh and uh uh so please you know please have your children vaccinated against spinal meningitis one of my children went out of state to college and his college required it um and you know there's there's no need to, to fear it and every need to, to protect our families from uh, a very, very serious disease. Great comment. And keep in mind, particularly about the deafness, um, that one of the most common causes of deafness in children, period, was meningitis. And now that we have all these vaccines, the number of cases of meningitis is plummets, but it's only going to stay plummeted if we continue to get the vaccine. Once you stop taking a vaccine, and whatever vaccine for whatever disease, that disease comes back. And you don't have to be in a third world country. It happens even in this country. So that's a very good point about the meningitis vaccine and deafness and how, again, it's much less than we used to see years ago. I don't know if y'all have seen that commercial for the for the men B vaccine. Have you seen the commercial for it? 
They've had it. They, it's been on air, I guess, for a couple of years now. But it's a pretty powerful commercial. Um, you know, they show the kids, like, getting ready for prom. And I think one of them does have hearing aids in, and that's one of the things. Or it may be, like, a cochlear implant. I can't really tell. But then there's another kid who's, like, working out and lifting weights, and he has a prosthetic leg because he's lost a limb from the meningococcal disease, which is another thing that we see um, because of the, the way that it can affect the body. Um, but, yeah, it's a pretty powerful a commercial. I'm not sure, Evelyn, if you've seen it before, but they definitely highlight the child having deafness and the child having a prosthetic leg because of the meningococcal disease. Right. And it not only can affect kids, it can affect our, our uh, it can affect us as adults. And, you know, uh, have a career and, uh, you know, it's easier to learn a foreign language such as sign language uh, when you're young. But have a career become deaf at age 35, 45, 55, 65, and try and learn a foreign language and, uh, you know, change what your life is about because you got a disease. So please, everybody, take that final meningitis seriously and uh, everybody stay healthy. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for your call, Evelyn. We appreciate it. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We have been talking today about vaccinations, and we've got some time left and some open phone lines. So if you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. And we have Bob on the line, who is in Hattiesburg. Good morning, Bob. What's going on? Yeah, this is a quick question. Uh, I want to know if there's a shot for uh, tuberculosis, and and I also speak about a polio vaccination and make a quick comment about uh, thousands and millions of people pouring across the border that's never had any vaccination. Is there an increase showing up as any age person, young and old, bringing uh, dangerous diseases across into the country that people have not been vaccinated? Well, I'm not sure I can answer that 100%. I do know that they do do look at that. For example, there's no polio coming into this country. And all the polio that's ever seen in this country comes from the Far East, not from, you know, Mexico and South and Central America. Um, In terms of tuberculosis, um, we really haven't seen a big increase. Um, There's no really uh, a a shot for tuberculosis. tuberculosis in the traditional sense, but we haven't seen, that I know of, a lot of that coming across the border. I think um, in tuberculosis they do vaccinate for it in other countries, like in India I know where it's pretty prevalent. There is a vaccine available, um, but it's not one that we routinely give. It's BCG, and again, it's not one routinely used Mm -hmm. here. It's not one that I know routinely used in Mexico or Central America either. No, the only countries I know are like India and some of the Middle Eastern countries is really where I've of patients that I have had that have had the vaccine. It's it's those patients from uh, India and the Middle East. Um, I sent you know in. In internal medicine, whenever I rotate through the hospital, we do still see TB cases. I probably still see at least one to two a year, um, and I'm not even in the hospital that much, so we're we do still see it a decent amount, um, as opposed to some of the other things. However, it's always in patients who are at higher risk. So right. a lot of these patients that we're diagnosing 
um, tuberculosis in, um, they either have HIV or they're getting a new diagnosis of HIV, or some of the other patients I have seen it in are patients who are on immunosuppressant medications for like some rheumatologic processes, so their immune system is has been compromised, and um, so that was one of the patients I had not too long ago. Um, or we also say um, in our homeless population and our prison population too, because that for some reason we see that a lot, and and those populations just with the close quarters that they have in shelters and in prisons. So yes, I have I do see like one or two cases a year of tuberculosis, but it's very it's very um, uh, population specific, I guess I would right. as a way to describe it. Um, so I don't know that we really would need vaccinations for it um, just because of the it's only certain populations that are exposed to it really at this time if that makes sense bob yeah can you still hear me yeah i can hear you all right uh what uh, there are what people's doctors are always throwing around the high risk of people give a quick rundown of what are the main classifications that would put you as a, p- a person with a high risk for, for which disease in right. particular? Oh, anything. Okay. What is, when, when, when y'all are talking, you always say people are, are high risk. What group of people are you talking about? Yeah. Well, if, if you look at, quote, high risk, and it's not specific for necessarily a specific disease. If you have cancer, for example, and you're being treated for cancer, your ability to protect yourself is not as good as the otherwise healthy football or basketball player, as an example. Um, if you had a transplant, got a new lung, got a new kidney, got a new liver, you're at high risk because your immune system, your protection system is not as good. Um, and as she mentioned, HIV is one that puts you at higher risk because your protection is not as good. Um, if you are an alcoholic and you have already shot your liver from all your drinking, the rest of your immune system, your protection is not as good. Um, if you get your spleen out because of you had an injury, you're not as well protected that puts you at high risk. So there's a lot of categories in which you can't protect yourself as well as that husky bull-looking guy or woman who looks, you know, they're just perfect-looking and all this kind of stuff. Um, You tend to lose your protection otherwise, and that quote puts you at high risk. And it varies as to which disease you're talking about. Um, and then the older you get, too. Right. So anybody over 65, I feel like is kind of always considered high risk. I'm at high risk. <laughs> um, because just because of the age, I mean, the older you right. get, your immune system is not as strong. So so hopefully that helps. It's kind of a that's kind of a hard one to answer because, like Dr. Feldman said, it, it really is disease specific. Um, like I said, tuberculosis, there are certain populations that are going to be higher risk for it. But for most of our bacterial illnesses and complications from viruses such as COVID, it's going to be people who have their immune system compromised, whether that be for medicines, no spleen, drinking, um, or if it's just from age, too. So I feel like that's kind of a hard question because it, it is so broad but hopefully that kind of gave you a little bit of a clue 
All right, thank you. Yeah, thanks for calling, Bob. This is Southern Remedy Kids and Teens on MPB Think Radio. We have been talking today about vaccines, and we've got a couple of callers on the line. And we will go first to Kevin. Good morning, Kevin. What's going on? Good morning. How are you guys? Doing good. Good. Hey, quick question about your HPV. I went through that about two and a half years ago with radiation and some uh, pretty complicated surgery on my neck area. And um, I'm wondering if I'm at age 62, is should I go for the shot? It's, a, it's not a relatively new shot, what you're saying, but it wasn't around when I was a child. Yeah. No, so at your age, probably not. Um to get HPV. Actually, I think the recommendation is up to age 45. Yeah, it was to 26, but then they, they extended it from 27 to 45 um, um, for certain situations. Right. But at age 62, I don't think you really need it. And, you know, your chances of getting an HPV cancer at that age, uh, you've been exposed umpteen years ago. Uh, but you're not going to get exposed uh, now in in general. So I don't think that's one of the vaccines that you would need. All right. Very good. I appreciate that very much. It was uh, quite the little ordeal, but uh, we're, uh, we're all good now. So well, thank you very much. Good. I'm glad to hear it. Thanks for calling because that was a good question because um, they have extended the age range. Uh, so you can get it up to age 45 now. But routinely we think about it more in our younger population yeah that's when <laughs> right and, and just to add in since somebody says i'm about hpv and i didn't mention that before there are seven cancers associated with hpv that you can prevent with um the cervical and the oral cancers cancers of the mouth the tongue the side of the mouth etc inside uh where a vaccine is basically virtually 90% or better protective. Um, and again, keep that in mind, that how protective this HPV vaccine is for these seven cancers, again, which oral and cervical are the two most common. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for calling. And you've kind of given us a good segue for the last couple of minutes. We can just mention the adult vaccines because we had, had briefly, we're going to talk about that. Um, so if you have any questions about that, too, but I don't know if you want to say anything about it. or if Well, you I was just to- going to mention that they now, <coughs> hepatitis B is a very common infection. And again, most people will get hepatitis B, um, get over it, and they never know the difference until somebody tests them for whatever reason. But the Centers for Disease Control now recommends that every adult, which means somebody over 19, should be tested for hepatitis B vaccine, hepatitis B infection. And if they're not infected, should get the hepatitis B vaccine. Um, Now, keep in mind, back in about 1992, 93, we began to immunize every child in this country for hepatitis B. So you're talking about if you're, you know, 20 years from... Uh, 1993, uh, you're 25 or 26 or 27 years old, you're probably already protected. But adults in their 30s and 40s, uh, unless they had the infection, should get the vaccine. 
and you can go to your doctor or health department or wherever, get tested for the hepatitis B, and then if you haven't had it, it's to go ahead and get the vaccine, which is a two-dose or a three-dose series, and that's been a new change by the CDC. Um, yeah, because it used to just be high-risk patients right. that we vaccinated and against. Now it's everybody, yeah. the whole population, period. Yeah. Um, and if you're over 65, yeah, if you want to get it, you can go ahead and get it. They're pushing it, I think, up to age 60, but they say if you're over and you want to get it, go ahead. The other change in the adults is the pneumococcal vaccine. Now, again, this pneumococcus causes ear infections and meningitis and pneumonia and blah, blah, blah in children. But it also causes severe pneumonia and infection in adults. And they now have a PCV20 vaccine, which is 20 different types against the pneumococcus, which has, I don't know, 50, 60 or whatever serotypes. But these 20 are the most common causes of infection in adults. And they're now recommending this in adults. So if you're an adult who's high risk or you're an adult, I think, over 60. Over 65. 65 <laughs> is to get the pneumococcal vaccine mm-hmm. and you will get this PCV20. And the, the list of adults that are recommended to get the pneumonia shot before 65 is, is pretty extensive. Right. It's, um, if you have diabetes, if you have kidney disease, if you have heart disease, um, if you're a smoker, not even if you have, I mean, definitely if you have COPD, or a history of um, lung cancer. But even if you are a smoker, they recommend going on and getting that vaccine, too, because you're going to be at high risk for complications from pneumonia. Um, any kind of cancer, any kind of immunosuppression, uh, those are the people that are going to be getting the rec- uh, the vaccine. So it honestly ends up being a pretty good bit of my adult patients because a lot of my patients have diabetes or they have some form of kidney disease. Um, so we end up vac- vaccinating a lot of people with pneumonia shots. And the pneumonia one is one that's I feel like is so tricky <laughs> from a primary care standpoint because they're constantly changing the recommendations of it. Um, not necessarily who gets it; it's more of the shots. Right. Um, but then you know there used to be two two different pneumonia vaccines that we would recommend. The nice thing about this new twenty is it kind of combines both of those. Um, so if you take this twenty, then it takes the place of both of those shots, which is really nice. Yeah, and I think that's going to be the wave of the future is this PCB20 gets it down to one shot, mm-hmm. which gives you great coverage. Yes, yeah. And so we're, we've been giving it out a pretty good bit, and it's also available um, at the pharmacy, too, and easy to right. get to. It's part of the routine vaccine. So, um, so yeah, so if you are over 65 or if you're under 65 and you have any of those conditions I listed, make sure you talk to your doctor about that or talk to your pharmacist so you can get that new shot because it's, it's shown to be pretty good. So, and then um, lastly, because we've got just like 30 seconds left, uh, the tetanus, the Tdap. I think we wanted to just mention that too. That's one that we recommend the tetanus every 10 years. But if you've never had the Tdap, which has the pertussis or the whooping cough in it, we want at least one of those vaccines to be that to replace the tetanus. Yeah, I think what's going to happen is in the future we're going to see Tdap replacing the TD altogether, period, end of story. And that's good because whooping cough is a problem that occurs even in older age. And while you don't get as sick as infants do, you do get it and you can pass Pass it on to your grandchildren. And that's a big thing.
Yeah. And think about Tdap and pregnancy. Yes. Because it's now a big push for Tdap and pregnancy. And if your husband or whoever lives with you, whatever your significant other, they would also get the Tdap if you're pregnant. Right. And grandparents. And grandparents. <laughs> well, thanks, Dr. Feldman. This has been such a good show. And thank you, Great. everybody, for calling in. We appreciate it. This has been Southern Remedy Kids and Teens, production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and Think Radio, and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today's show is engineered by Jay White. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.